This is KCLR's Bottom Line with John Purcell. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants, the Southeast's largest independent accountancy practice. www.onf.ie Hello, good morning and welcome to The Bottom Line, the programme for and about business here on KCLR. I'm Edwina Grace, in for John Purcell and thanks to Brian Redmond there for the last two wonderful hours and Ethna Quirk who of course is keeping you up to date on our news desk today. This morning on The Bottom Line, in the midst of Taste Kilkenny Restaurant Week, we hear from two local venues with Michelin stars. We talk invoice redirect fraud with a senior representative from the Carlo Kilkenny Garda Division and we look at consumer behaviours through the pandemic and which ones we're most likely to keep. But first, Minister of State with responsibility for heritage, Malcolm Noonan, our own Carlo Kilkenny Green TD, joins me in studio. Good morning, Minister Noonan, and thanks for taking time out to be with us. Earlier this month, the town centre's first policy was launched. Will you tell people first exactly what that is? When we put the town centres first, I I recall going back to the the formation of government back in, in 2020 in the depths of COVID, there was a module there on local government and the whole issue of urban centres came up and and the decay and the decline of our urban centres. So we were all sitting around the table and I was saying, has anybody ever heard of Town Centres First, which is a Scottish uh, government initiative and it's a whole of government approach to trying to, to lead on urban regeneration. Lo and behold, we managed to include a policy objective in the programme for government called Town Centres First and that we were going to develop a policy similar to Scotland. Uh, we had a lot of help from the Heritage Council, Chambers Ireland, Institute of Chartered Surveyors, lots of people inputted into it and um, when the government was formed, Minister Burke, my colleague in the Department of Housing, Local Government and Heritage, led off on the plan, a really collaborative plan, brought together all of the, the people involved in urban regeneration, Heritage Council, all of those agencies. What culminated then was the launch in Moat in County Westmeath uh, two weeks ago by uh, Minister Burke, Minister Heather Humphreys, uh, who's for Rural and Community Development, and myself. What it contains are a suite of policies and actions to support local authorities and town teams. So what we're advocating is the establishment of town teams to lead off on the regeneration of their own towns. So a lot of it was happening already. There was quite an amount going on in towns uh, where people saw the challenges facing dereliction in their own communities and they decided just to to, to head off and, and lead on that. In tandem with that, the Heritage Council had been doing a really fantastic piece of work led by Alison Harvey using the Collaborative Town Centre Health Checks just to get to the, the nitty-gritty of where the challenges were. Some, You know, you, you might think in a place like Carlow, Kilkenny or Tullow that it's all about traffic and it's about car parking. But when you actually do the Collaborative Town Centre Health Check, you find it's actually about a lot of different things. And that So what we're trying to do with Town Centres First is use that work that Alison has been doing and leading it on a default basis with every town in Ireland. Uh, so we'll be um, setting up a national administrative office for town centres, uh, rolling out the town centres health checks on a default uh, for, for every town that want to, to do that, and then putting in place um, supports, an implementation team, all the grant schemes that are there, a one-stop shop to support uh, communities and local authorities who want to avail of the grant scheme. So it's really, it's, it's looking at a lot of disparate policies that have been there in the past, bringing them together and uh, government leading, but also animating the communities themselves to be part of the regeneration of their own communities and towns. 
And this area featured quite strongly in terms of case studies. Um, I'm thinking uh, Fenley's in Callan, in particular Callan uh, itself. And I know Eitan, a very proud member of the uh, town team there. Also, the work that's going on in the Abbey Quarter in Kilkenny and a nod to, to the Project Carlo 2040. First of all, Callum was one of the five pilot town centre living initiatives that was led by Heather Humphrey's department and I, we were able to bring the outputs of that document into the into the town centre's first policy and Callum had done some really interesting work because a lot of this is about opening up maybe perhaps challenging conversations but conversations that need to be had nonetheless and it, it really was trying to get to the nitty-gritty of what were the, the, the opportunities and challenges. So we think this is an ongoing iterative conversation process that needs to take place and Callan had been doing that for years through the the Commonage, the the, the Bridge Street project, some of the, the community theatre of which I was involved in myself and played a, a corpse in one of them. Uh, I was very good actually <laughs> by all accounts and um, it, it's using that collaborative process to, to to get uh, communities to be active participants in that regeneration. So Callum was picked, and rightfully so, as was the Carlo Project 2040, because Carlo had done a really innovative piece of work in actually uh, leading off on a, on a, on a plan that, that's very forward-thinking, not just five or ten years like a development plan, but right up to 2040. And some of that stuff has been funded already now through Heather Humphrey's department, through uh, Urban Regeneration. And then the Abbey Quarter, of course, was picked as well. So uh, there's a lot of local projects there that we can all learn from. But right around the country, there's lots of really good work going on. And from my perspective, from the heritage side of it, where I see the opportunity is that heritage-led regeneration. Most of our towns are 19th, early 20th century buildings. They're not in productive use. The owners of them don't see the opportunity. There's a big challenge around planning and, and particular where they're on the record of protected structures. How do we unlock that potential? So we brought in grant schemes uh, and enhanced them over the last two years to fund, um, you know, re-roofing, reinstating timber sash windows, insulating them to a, a, a high degree of thermal comfort, all of that. And then Housing for All has a, a section in it where it's looking at the opportunity to use those houses in town centres for people to live in. And Minister O'Brien then more recently uh, announced an initiative to um, waive the, the planning permissions around living above pub premises. And, and so that I think we the one thing we'll see Edwina, as we look across Carlon Kilkenny, is to look ab- above the shop uh, level in any of our towns at night and see how many lights are on. Very, very few. So, you know, if, if we have people living in the town centre, that's good for the local butcher, the local shops, local retailers, uh, who are many who, who are really struggling at the moment. So we see this as a huge economic enabler for town centres. And we see, from a climate perspective, we see the towns being the closest place to deal with issues like climate change because people can walk and cycle to school, they can walk and cycle to work um, and they're safe places. If we can create safe spaces for them to do that and good quality living, there's a fantastic opportunity there. What does the business community locally have to do or what role do you see them playing? They play a huge, import, hugely important role. I, I met uh, recently, We ha- I have regular meetings with uh, both Kilkenny and Carlow Chamber and uh, both 
of them were very animated and very excited about the town centres first. Uh, for many months uh, of, our, of our meetings, they were saying, when, when is it coming? When is it coming? So they're delighted now to see it launched and uh, they really see that great opportunity uh, for their members uh, to, to benefit from it in the form of, as I said, the the reimagination of the public space, of public realm, uh, having a reconsideration about urban mobility, cycling and walking, uh, creating safe spaces for pe- for young people to hang out. All of that's good for local economy. Uh, and then that, that opportunity around all of those derelict buildings. Uh, how can we get them back into use? What are the barriers? What are the opportunities? Um, and and there are, there are many. And, you know, certainly Kilkenny previously had been involved in a Living Cities initiative, which, which was a tax incentive scheme. And that scheme didn't really take off, unfortunately. So we looked at what were the failings there? What were the challenges? A lot of them seem to fall into categories around um, access into buildings, around the constraints uh, of listed buildings or buildings that are on the record of protected structures. So we need a flexibility in the system to allow those buildings to be brought back into productive use. And I think that's what we're trying to do with the Town Centre's first policy, looking at those opportunities and then working individually house by house, building by building, with the premises owners. Uh, but also, um, I think this is critically important, um, setting targets for local authorities to buy some of those, to compulsory purchase some of those houses and put them into use for social housing. Going back to business again, um, some areas have seen certain enterprises pop up just slightly on the outskirts of the urban centres locally and they've been hailed because they're easily accessible, there's plenty of car parking and all of that. But then you will have people saying, but it's these enterprises that are taking from the core of the the town centre. Is that something we need to look at or do we need to re-look at the offering that um, businesses are making on, on our high streets? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I, I think it's a combination of both. I think what we, we need to give consideration to is maybe the experiential nature of shopping and, and perhaps the, the making the town centre easy to access and attractive, uh, a place where, you know, perhaps we see it evolving in Kilkenny at the moment, where there's a lot of boutiques and a lot of that type of activity, really good restaurants, really good cafes. So people want to come to Kilkenny because of good urban environment and a good urban quality of life. So you, you might get a combination of both. But there's no reason that, that other businesses can't survive and thrive in town centres either. Um, you know, in other countries they have uh, one-mile depots where they bring... Uh, the materials and goods to a depot on the outskirts of a town and use smaller vehicles to deliver them to shops. So you're not having HGVs and trucks trundling through old town centres. So we we need to look at all those opportunities. I mean, you know, I would have had my battles in the past with some of the big retail multiples and locating on the edges edges of town. And, you know, that was 10, 11, 12 years ago. And I look at it now that that conversation is turning around and people see that perhaps the inappropriateness of the overscale of edge of town development and uh, cut and paste uh, retail strategies that said oh you you ha- you have to have this big box retail on the edge of your town because if you don't they're going to go to that town but that never really necessarily benefited the urban center or the independent retailer and there's a lot of evidence to 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 support the, the fact that you know for every job created in a big box out of town retailer you're losing one and a half jobs in the in the urban center from independent retailers so from all that point of view i think 
local authorities need to be enabled. They're, you know, we'll, we'll be tasking them to do this, but we're also providing uh, town, town centre regeneration officers. Uh, we've provided additional supports in planning and, and in the housing sections. And all of the, the suite of policies that were put in place, not just in town centres first, but in the National Development Plan, in Housing for All, in Active Travel, the interrelatedness of this needs to, to lock in and and look at every opportunity. The reason it's called Town Centres First is you look at what resources you have in the town centre before you consider going to the periphery. The whole idea of um, continuously building and building on uh, greenfield sites because it's too easy to do so, uh, while in reality you have this huge resource in your town centre that could all be reused and repurposed. And, you know, the the... the, the the, 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 there's a great line there the the greenest building is the one that's already built and we should be using all these buildings um, and so I think it's taken some time for that narrative to turn around but I definitely think what encourages me is that everybody's on board now and I feel you know when we launched town centres there's been a huge interest in it since and, and everybody's wondering when they're getting their, their town regeneration officer they're wondering when are we going to have this grand, grand scheme that grand scheme and um, th so there's an eagerness in government to, to lead on it and an eagerness at community level to drive these projects forward. Okay. Uh, before I let you go, uh, a town in each county was selected for the first phase. Locally, it's Tullow and Erlingford. What can we expect for both of those? Uh, what we can expect, I think, um, and I was in Tullow recently and looking at, you know, they still have a lot of schools in the town centre. There's still uh, a lot of... Um, dereliction and a lot of vacant premises you know if you look at uh, vacancy on the continent I was involved in some European projects on urban centres previously and they would consider a crisis to be between 5 and 10% vacancy we have vacancies of 20 and 30% in some of our towns so I think what we want to see and I think it's already happening there is already a, a, a team of people involved in Tolo who want to be involved in the regeneration of the town similarly in Orlingford there's a great community there and I think what we're trying to do is pick different sized towns to look at the different dynamics. Arlingford obviously quite smaller. Um, you know, it, it has, uh, I suppose, in some ways benefited from, but also been a victim of uh, being bypassed, you know, uh, from the motorway. Uh, and it should look at that opportunity because there's beautiful built heritage there that they can really capitalise on. Similarly in Tullow, um, a lot of history. And I think it's telling those stories. Uh, they have a beautiful river running through it. Uh, it's It's seizing that opportunity and looking at the assets that they have and turning that into a positive. So that's what I'd like to see happen from all of these um, uh, towns. And, and as I said, I think the communities themselves are really up for this now. They want to be part of the story to lead off on that regeneration. Great. Well, Minister Malcolm Noonan, thanks very much for joining us. And we look forward to hearing from businesses in particular in the Tullow and Erlingford areas over the next while. The Bottom Line on KCLR with John Purcell. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants, the Southeast's largest independent accountancy practice. www.onf.ie if you're just joining us, thanks for stopping by. You're tuned to The Bottom Line and it's Edwina Grace here for John Purcell this week. Now, we've been hearing a lot on our news lately about various types of scams and today we're going to focus on invoice redirect fraud. Crime Prevention Officer for the Carlocal Kenny Garda Division, Sergeant Peter McConnell, joins me and thanks for doing so, Sergeant. Can you start by outlining this type of con? Invoice redirection fraud, you know, we, we ask how does it work. Very simply, uh, a business is approached by somebody pretending to represent a supplier, a service provider, or a creditor. And then a combination of approaches can be used, like telephone, letter, email, 
So the fraudster requests that the bank details for a payment, uh, that's the bank account of the payee uh, for future invoices, be changed. So the new account suggested is controlled by the fraudster. So basically, you're getting a phone call to your your business saying, uh, we've changed our bank details. Can you make all future payments into this account? And uh, without the proper checks being carried out, um, that money is gone into a false account or a fraudulent account that is under the control of the fraudster. Quite devastating potentially for businesses. Absolutely, you know, clicking uh, one click of a, of a button and you you could be seriously out of pocket uh, with, without knowing it and the real problem that, that exists then is that you don't realise that you've done it until the uh, creditor or the supplier comes with the you know genuine invoice and say well I've, I have already paid that and they said oh no you haven't so that could be a number of days or, or a couple of weeks after even so the money is well gone from the fraudulent account at that stage so I suppose look, we ask people ask you know what, what can you do about it so as a business owner a business manager uh, we ask that you ensure that your employees are informed and aware of this type of fraud first of all and how to avoid it are people aware that this is, is happening as a business owner a manager you might know but do your employees know so make them aware of it implement a procedure to verify the legitimacy of payment requests and a very simple way of, around that is you know you, you you stop you don't pay anything until you pick up the phone and you contact the supplier or the creditor, the person who's making the request to change the bank details, who you think is making the request to change the bank details, you know, and talk to a trusted or known person in that company. So instruct staff responsible for paying invoices to always check the invoice for any irregularities whatsoever. Any information that you have should be reviewed and posted on your on your company website. So um, particular contracts and suppliers ensure your staff limit what they share about the company on social media. You know, they're the very simple base as the manager or business owner uh, that you need to be that message needs to be got across to your your employees and some of these scams um, Sergeant McConnell they can be so sophisticated anybody can get caught I suppose it's just so easy to, to fall into the trap yeah, a lot of, of our businesses and companies today are, are obviously advertising and sharing a lot of information on social media. Um, a lot of information is readily available. If you click into, you know, you want to target a specific company, there's a lot of information readily available at your fingertips through the internet, through um, through different social media platforms. So it's ensuring that too much information is not put put out there on public display for for hackers, criminals, cyber criminals to be able to access that information and use it to um, victimise you as a company. And how serious an issue has this become um, locally or, or even nationally? The nature of the crime is that it's a it's a global type crime, and um, so uh, again, you know, Kilkenny and Carlow is not going to be any different to any other part of Ireland or the world for that matter in relation to you know the accessibility to somebody's information if they put it up online for the world and its mother to see so again you know we are not without victimization in that regard in Kilkenny and Carlo um, the reality of it in many cases is, you know the the crime might not even be perpetrated in this country. It could be, you know, in some foreign country, you know, that somebody is, is setting out the scam in uh, foreign lands 
and it's, it's hitting our computers and our phones or our laptops in our uh, homes and our businesses in Ireland, in Kilkenny and Carlow. So again, I suppose uh, that the message from the, from the, for the businesses is to educate the employees and make them know and have processes put in place. But from an employee point of view, employees need to verify all requests that are purporting to be from, from creditors, uh, especially if they ask you to change their bank details for future invoices. Don't use the contact details on letter, fax or email requesting the change. Use those from previous correspondence where you know which have been genuine and have been paid. You know, setting up designated single points of contact with companies are very, very important. So you have a known and trusted person in that company that you can contact in relation to any queries or information that you need verified. Uh, restrict information that you share with your employer on social media. So again, social media is, again, something that we need to be very, very mindful of. Um, information can be shared on that that will give ammunition to criminals to be able to exploit you. So when an invoice is paid, uh, send an email to the to inform the recipient, um, include the beneficiary bank name and the last four digits of the account to ensure the security of it. And for payments over a certain threshold, we, we ask that you set up a procedure to confirm the correct bank account and, and recipient, you know, and that is a meeting face-to-face with the company that you're going to be dealing with. So these are uh, precautions that just need to be taken uh, in this day and age. And then, Sergeant McConnell, if you're caught, if something happens and, and, and you realise, what do you need to do? The most important thing um, that, that has to happen is that you immediately report the matter to your financial institution and to the Gardaí. The earliest reporting on something is the best chance that you have of saving the money, saving your money, retrieving your money and putting a stop on the, on the money going out of either your own account or a rogue account that it might be gone into. So the important thing is to get that reported to both your financial institution and to the Gardaí as soon as possible. Um, It's the best chance you have of retrieving the money. And, um, you know, obviously there's an investigation process to be be, uh, gone through from um, a a police point of view or a Garda point of view. And that investigation um, can only take place uh, once the matter is reported to the Gardaí. And how successful can um, Gardaí be in stopping these transactions or, or stopping the fraud? A lot of it is going to come down to, um, I suppose, international cooperation with other police forces in a lot of, of circumstances, which, you know, um, are strengthening at all times because of the nature of these crimes and because of the global incidence of them. You know, it's it's something that, you know, it, there are no boundaries, you know, there are no um, national boundaries to this. So it's that... That's international cooperation and Europol, you know, it's, it's a combination of a number of European comp- uh, countries who have come together, police forces have come together. They have um, certainly improved systems in the last number of years to be able to, to fight these, these type of crimes. The new type crimes are always going to be that little bit harder to investigate and to be brought to a, a conclusion. But look, there has been many successes and, you know, obviously, you know, uh, some of them have been documented in, in the media and um, publicly in, in the last couple of, of years and months, you know, not, uh, I know that, that a particular local authority were caught for a large amount of money, which was, a lot of it was retrieved. So, look, the retrieving of the money is one aspect of it. Bringing uh, perpetrators to justice is is another matter, um, and that probably is a little bit more difficult because in um, most cases, these are 
uh, obviously quite obviously um, false names uh, false no faces uh, faceless crime uh, so stuff that is set up and torn down and um, you know uh, completely driven underground very very quickly if they feel that there's somebody a law enforcement agency onto them so they can be quite difficult to, to, to investigate but I suppose from a point of view of a loss uh, let it be identity or uh, financial, the most important thing is to be able to retrieve that data or, or money as, as soon as possible. I did come across a very pertinent uh, quote from Robert S. Muller, who's the former director of the FBI, uh, and he said that there are two types, there are only two types of companies, those that have been hacked and those that will be. And that's a number of years ago, so the foresight that he had was going to say that we're all going to be hacked at some stage. And I suppose, to, and I, I don't want to go into too many statistics, but one of the corporate risks that we see, uh, and a statistic that I will give you is that 60, this is a global report now from Mindcast, um, which was was uh, issued in 2021, last, last year, uh, 61% of companies suffered a ransomware attack in 2020. That's massive. That is that just shows you the the uh, the risk that is that is uh, at stake here. Sixty four percent report that email threats using infected attachments increased in twenty twenty, and seventy nine percent of companies uh, said that they were not prepared for cybercrime attacks. That just shows you to, to the risk that is involved. And I suppose as we're coming out or easing the um, COVID restrictions, there's still a lot of businesses who have people working from home, who have people who choose to work from a cafe or where maybe the um, links to their base and and potentially links to data and money might be a a little bit um, easy to get into too. Yeah, um, clicking on links, I suppose, has always been the problem either from a corporate point of view or from a, a personal point of view. So the fact that people are still working from home um, may increase the risk. And that hasn't gone amiss a, a with the uh, criminal fraternity either. They are aware that their their cloak has, has spread a little bit um, uh, thicker in the sense of uh, people working from home. So, you know, the cyber criminals, we say, have recognised the fact that the uh, that victim base has grown significantly with people working from home. Um, so companies need to be aware of the threats that a, a potentially more open workplace uh, brings and to be able to identify and assess and mitigate the threats that that in- increased in- exposure brings. Um, and that includes CEO or invoice redirection frauds. There are less controls possibly at home, uh, quicker response with less facilities and security in place. So again, ransomware is another thing that we be very, very careful of. And working from home may present problems with security, with system security. You're working off your own network, your own Wi-Fi. Uh, you might, you know, pop out for coffee, maybe click into a public Wi-Fi system that, you know, has serious uh, security issues. So system protections are possibly not up to, to date. Again, all these matters need to be considered in relation to, you know, financial and other work practices that uh, are happening through our computer systems. Okay. Well, you're going to supply us with some material that we can put on our social that people can check out. Yeah, you know, there's a couple of Europol, Europol documents, infographs that are that are very uh, worthwhile, and certainly, you know, we will share them with you. Um, it's in relation to uh, your cyber scams and um, what you can do as a company, as or as an employer in relation to CEO business email compromise.
Great. Well, thank you and thank you for your time, Sergeant Peter McConnell. You're very good and thank you very much for the, for the opportunity, Edwina. The Bottom Line on KCLR with John Purcell. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants. Now offering a complete life and pensions advisory service to business. www.omf.ie You're tuned to The Bottom Line with Edwina Grace sitting in for John Purcell today. Now, did you notice anything different during the pandemic in terms of consumer behaviour or did we ourselves change our tack when it comes to how and what we buy? To look through that a little more, we're joined by Anne Zahan, who's Strategy Director with CORE. Good morning, Anne. Can you start by telling us who and what CORE is? Sure. So CORE is Ireland's largest communications company. So um, with this report, with Predict 2022, we wanted to look at how various predictions that we had on how Ireland would react during the pandemic have translated to uh, reality. And what did you find? We looked at five different behaviour categories. We looked at health, we looked at digital behaviours, we looked at our, our social lives, we looked at retail and travel. And within these categories, we looked at what behaviours that we saw during the pandemic are likely to stick in a post-pandemic world. And I suppose our most interesting finding was that two out of five people are very interested in considering a new life direction and nearly half of those aged under 45 years old say that they are considering a new life direction. And that's not much of a surprise, right? When, when life halts unexpectedly, you're left evaluating all the choices you've made and you're still making. And I know personally, I've had many friends leave their industries or their careers and go into different industries or in some cases pausing their careers completely in search of, of more meaning. It's only natural. But new life directions doesn't just relate to to careers. People are also reconsidering where they live. So moving away from bigger cities like Dublin, for instance, into more rural areas. And that's something that with, with the ease and prevalence of working from home is becoming more accessible to us, not needing to live in, in commuter friendly areas. So in a nutshell, we've had the time and the headspace to evaluate our lives. And a lot of us are making a step change. And that could have quite a significant knock-on effect for the more rural businesses across the country. That's exactly it. So in terms of implications for businesses and for brands, big life events make you want to try new brands. So back in 2016, Richard Shotton and Jenny Riddell, who are uh, behavioural scientists, did a piece of research where they found that people are more likely to try new brands or new businesses following big life events. So things like moving house, getting married, starting a new job, that kind of thing. And this pandemic has been a big life event for everyone. So if you're a challenger brand or a a smaller business in a rural area, it's a great time to get your brand or business in, in front of people. But on the other hand, if you're a more established brand, it's important that the way your brand positioning is structured is around a new set of wants and a new set of needs. So things like more family time, less commuting, supporting local, that kind of thing, so that your brand remains relevant to the consumer when when you're up against these smaller emerging brands. And I suppose the flip side to that then is this offers employers uh, plenty of food for thought because they're going to have to factor in the shimmying um, that, that, that it might take with uh, people moving out of the more urban centres. 
that's exactly it. So employers now have to see, they have to balance and weigh up what what they need from um, from a, a staff perspective and what they can offer. So people are a lot less likely to go into jobs where you need to go in five days a week and um, there's an expectation that you're always going to be in office because there are so many alternatives now. We've seen, if you like, we've seen a new way of living and it's hard for us to go back to the way it was before. So employers really need to get on board and think about how they're going to, uh, to maintain a good level of staff uh, while this is happening. And tell me, I'm all about the numbers here. Uh, you guys released the Future Index Predict 2022 at 2.22 on the 2nd of the 2nd, 22. <laughs> we did, yeah. We thought that was very clever. Really, we just wanted to see, I think everyone that works in this space, in the marketing space, had so many predictions throughout the pandemic of how we're all going to react and, and what kind of things we'd be bringing out we wanted to take the stance of, do you know what? We can't predict human behavior, but we want to see what behaviors that have happened during the pandemic are likely to stick just based on what people are telling us. So we asked things like, how likely are you uh, to consider doing this in the future? Or how likely do you think other people will continue doing this in the future? So another interesting stat for you is that 1.4 million people are expecting to avail of telehealth or e-health services. So those are behaviors that would have been, I suppose, more niche pre-pandemic, but now it's a lot more mainstream. And along the same vein, mental health has received a massive increase in attention. So 37% of adults are saying that they're very conscious of their mental well-being. And 49% are saying that they're somewhat conscious of their mental well-being. So, again, that's not surprising given the, the cultural shift towards promoting positive mental health. But it's really encouraging to, to see it coming to life in the research. Really, really interesting and a, a, a lot of food for thought, I think, for both employer and employee and indeed all of us as, as consumers too. Come here while I have you. What can you tell me about the February 2022 consumer mindset? So I can tell you that um, with our latest consumer mindset report, we're looking at how public confidence is growing again. So coming out of, I mean, it's really hard to say coming out of the lockdown because it's something we've said uh, several times, but, you know, coming out of the winter, I suppose, into the summer, um, consumer confidence is growing. And that's great news for, for businesses and brands in Ireland. Great. Well, if people want to find out more about both, um, where can they go, on? They can go to onecore.ie to find out more and to get all of our reports. That's brilliant. Anne Zahan, Strategy Director with Core. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. We had good news this week for Kilkenny with word that the area is retaining the two Michelin stars that exist in the county. And one of those, of course, is with Campania in Kilkenny City. Garrett Byrne, your executive chef and co-owner there. Congratulations, first of all. Thanks very much. I'd imagine so. And I suppose you're a person who's uh, who was already familiar to the whole Michelin side of things before you returned to your native Kilkenny. Yeah, I was um well I was in head I was the head chef in chapter one for uh, for a good while before opening here in oh, two thousand and eight. I was there for about God, six or seven years before we opened here. So um we got a Michelin star there in two thousand and six, I think. And yeah, that was a 2006. Then we opened here ourselves in 2008. 
2008. And was Michelin on your radar when you came back to Kilkenny? Or uh, was no, it something you were thinking no, of? No, not so. Never even, totally honestly, never even crossed our mind. Um, we just opened a restaurant just to do nice food and nice wine and, you know, that kind of thing. And it wasn't really on our radar. Uh, now, we just find out later that they were actually here the first week we opened because it heard I'd left chapter one and was moving home to open my own place so um, it heard about it but I, I found out that years later when one of them said it to me um, so they'd obviously been watching it for a little while but we didn't know until we actually got the star you know in 2013 or 14 and you've managed to pretty much retain it since then yeah 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 it's, uh, seven years now seven years <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who's counted anymore? <laughs> no, no, no. Well, we don't count it, but we just do <laughs> And Gareth, what's that like as a business? Whatever about getting a Michelin star, to keep it has to be um, quite an onerous task. Um, it, it is and it isn't. Um, it's, uh, as everyone knows, you know, any business expensive to run. So when you're dealing with Michelin and things like that, you're buying... You know, the vast majority of your spend is going and buying quality ingredients and having nice things in the restaurant, basically. Um, so, from that point of view, yes, you do spend a little bit more money, but we try not to think about it in terms of mixing and stuff. We just try to think about it as in, it's like an investment, if you know what I mean. Um, buying nice ingredients, make sure the restaurant is nice and clean and, you know, that things are nice and the good wine list and you know there's the basics of what we would call it you know that's where we spend the money on you know so the focus is on the food and and the experience yeah. and and yeah. all of that yeah, yeah. The wine and the whole thing you know but obviously that costs money but you know is um that that would be where our you know our focus is on you know money wise you know on spending and to do it and especially to to hold on to the star during uh, the last couple of years when you when you considered the pandemic and everything yeah. else how, how did you find that and the challenges that that posed um it was horrible <laughs> <laughs> not knowing what was going to happen now in fairness the government they've been absolutely brilliant the supports we got have been you know they've kept us afloat if, if we didn't have the support there wouldn't be a restaurant in the country open now you know they allowed us to pay our staff and pay suppliers uh, pay rent your mortgage whatever you know not fully but at least you know you could you could kind of have plans for the future without we never knew when we were going to come out of a lockdown but at least we knew that uh, we were going to get a little bit of support there for for as long as we were in lockdown you know so you weren't like worrying day in day out like oh how are we going to pay the mortgage or how are we going to pay suppliers or whatever like that there was a little bit of money coming in that we were able to you know, pay off a little to everybody every week or every month, you know. So that was brilliant. Like, the, the government have been very good in support, you know. So when we did come out of the lockdowns, and hopefully now this, the last one gone, will be the last lockdown. Um, you know, now we can start to plan for the future again, you know. Because um, it's very hard to plan when you don't have, when you don't know if you're going to be open, you know. So hopefully now going forward we can put the heads down and just concentrate on, you know, the year ahead and doing what we normally should be doing, you know. So that's where our focus will be on this year. Okay. And I suppose in in the short term, we're seeing um, this weekend, I suppose, the Taste of Kilkenny Restaurant yeah. Week is kicking off. What what would your insights uh, long-term be for the sector across the rest of the year? Um, this year, I'm pretty optimistic um, in the sense of, I think that people haven't been out in two years. Or, you know, 
relatively speaking, um, and that there's a little bit of pent-up demand there, which I think will definitely get us through this year. Next year, who knows? Um, but I definitely, I'm very hopeful for this year that, you know, things will go, you know, as well as can be expected, you know. Um, like, we had the golf coming up here in July. Kenny's always good for festivals and things like that, so, like, I'll be hopeful that, you know, things will keep... Things will keep, uh, you know, upbeat and keep uh, positive, you know. I, I can't see huge international tourism coming back this summer, but um, hopefully next year that will start to happen, you know. And I'll be fingers crossed then. Great, and I'm sure we'll be talking to you again about your next star, or holding <laughs> on to it. <laughs> holding on to it is fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the one is good. <laughs> The Bottom Line on KCLR with John Purcell. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants, offering a broad range of business and advisory services to businesses large and small across the southeast. As we've been hearing really good news for this locality when the announcement came uh, just a couple of days ago about the Michelin stars and the listings. And of course, Mount Juliet Estate is back in there again. Mark Dunn, you're the general manager. A lot of celebrating, I'd imagine, going on there. Yes, thank you for doing it. We're delighted. And for the eighth year in a row to retain the mission star at the Lady Helen is really an amazing achievement for the team both front of house and back of house as you can imagine I can well imagine indeed and you know we're saying to Gart Byrne of Campania whatever about achieving a Michelin star to hold on to it is the real work isn't it? It's testament to John and the culinary team and it's the level of detail and, and commitment that it requires to keep delivering that year after year it's not an easy proposition and you know, as an onlooker, and I'll be very, always very honest about that, it takes it takes a lot of different people to make success of a place like Mount Juliet, and, and the culinary team do an amazing job down there. And to watch how they deliver it time and time again is really special. And from a business, how how do you do that? It takes lots of hands, um, and obviously from a, the producers right through to how we present it on the plate. So the team really go out, find the very best produce, and then deliver it in, in the most amazing way. And, and it's still being very true to the ingredient as well, you know, and, and I won't talk for John and how he would do it, but they, they do uh, try and keep it simple, but it's never simple if you ask me. You see you see what goes into it right through from picking the produce to presenting it then within each dish. And there really has to be a buy-in then across the board from all staff, from the crew in the kitchen to those serving up the dishes too. Absolutely. And it goes without saying that the front of house team, they're, they're delivering it and from the sommeliers to the, the maitre d'Aga who's been with us for many years as well, they really do an amazing job and the entire resort comes together to deliver that. So it's it's one huge element of what Mount Juliet is, is culinary and the real expert level of dining experience that you get here. And for, for that to happen, it comes from everyone. So you're right, it comes right through from delivering amazing golf to amazing dining to the accommodation team to that overnight experience that you get as part of everything that we we do here so it is it's one one team coming to make sure it all happens but at the same time you know it is testament to the team at the lady helen for delivering it and and retaining it and the same with the rosettes and now having four rosettes is a really unique achievement as well so it's hats off to them and and well done and mark it must have been particularly hard uh, or harder to hang on to things uh, when you considered the challenges of the last two years and the pandemic how did things change a little or did you have to do any particular shimmying it's an important thing to say and and we 
you couldn't but thank the people who were with us who have departed for for the reasons the industry has had a really difficult time we've lost lost lots of great people who who may have changed industry or have changed country and who uh, who are who have left us and that's that's left a difficult proposition for us over the coming weeks and months to ensure that we we go out and recruit and we bring in great people to work with us at Mount Juliet. So it is and will be, I've no doubt, challenging for the next number of months, especially as all of hospitality comes back and starts to reopen as this you know, what the season would be from March forward at the year ahead, especially with an Irish Open coming to Kilkenny. Yeah, and I suppose, uh, speaking about the Irish Open, we're already hearing about the, the potential economic uh, benefits for the wider community, not just in Kilkenny, but in surrounding counties too. Uh, a lot of excitement there, and I suppose getting in that staff uh, level that you need and making sure they're all singing from the same hymn sheet with regards to the Mount Juliet Estate story, um, I suppose, is going to be key. Yes, well, we like to think that people will, will, want, will be attracted by the, the proposition of coming to work in a great estate like Mount Juliet and in a great part of Ireland, which is Kilkenny. And I think it, it becomes more attractive by the day. And our commitment to bring the Irish Open back from an ownership perspective um, and a team at Mount Juliet, because they, they're, it's their time and their effort that will be required to bring it to life again. And locally, we've no doubt what it can deliver based on the, the viewership that we had in 2021. And we know it'll be bigger and better into 2022. And it'll have a huge positive effect for us and as a region, no doubt, into the, the years to come. So uh, it is a little bit of time yet, but we do have a, a lot of roles to fill. And, and whether that's from greenkeeping to culinary to to the management and front of house and supervisory levels that we have, you know, so it's, it's, it'll be an exciting uh, few weeks and months ahead, let's just say. Fantastic. Well, look, we wish you the very best of luck with the weeks and months ahead and I'm sure you'll keep us posted on all your progress. I will. Thank you, Adina. And I, from my perspective, proud to be part of such an amazing team and congratulations to them all here at Mount Juliet for, for retaining the star and I've no doubt what will be a large number of successes into 2022. So uh, exciting times ahead. And of course, the Hound, which is also at Mount Juliet, has a listing in the guide along with the Lady Anna Creamery House in Castle Comer and Kilkenny City's Restaurant Irinicini with Clashgani House of Burris, while Sharo Bistro in Clonigal recently held on to its bib gourmand. That's all we've got time for this week on The Bottom Line. And remember, if you have any comments or ideas you'd like to get to us, you can email The Bottom Line at kclr96fm.com. Or if you'd like to listen back to the show or indeed any episode of The Bottom Line, just search for The Bottom Line on KCLR on Apple Store, Google Play or Spotify or download the KCLR app. Thanks to all my guests this week, Minister Malcolm Noonan, Sergeant Peter McConnell, Anne Zahan, Gart Byrne and Mark Dunn. Thanks especially to Deirdre Drummy who produces the show and thank you for listening. Etna Quirk is on the way with your next news update. Have a lovely weekend and we'll talk to you next week. KCLR's Bottom Line. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants. Now offering a complete life and pensions advisory service to business. www.omf.ie